You can have a seat and you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we continue our series on worship. 1 Corinthians 11. Well, about six years ago, one of my eyes stopped working, stopped being able to see out of one of my eyes. And uh, when people hear that, they typically are are pretty concerned. Like, am I going to be okay? Can I still see? Can I still read and drive? And am I going to be all right? And the answer is yes. I'm going to be fine because even though God gave us two eyes, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, he gave us two eyes, but you can still only focus on one thing at a time. And so I still see just like you see. I, I just don't have depth perception, so it's a problem if we go play catch, but I don't do that a lot, so it's not a big deal. Even though you have two eyes, you can only focus on one thing at a time. That is the essence of of the problem that we'll look at in our passage this morning. This morning we're, we're talking about worship again, just like last week. And so let's review. What is worship? Biblically, worship is, is declaring the great worth of God to God, to ourselves, and, and to one another. We are proclaiming how wonderful God is, the, his great character, his, his great actions, his great faithfulness. To worship is, is to exalt. That word exalt, it means to lift someone up. In worship, we are lifting God up so that everyone's attention, everyone's focus is on him and on his greatness. But in worship, you can only focus on one thing at a time. If we bring something else in our lives or or in our church and we lift it up next to God, well, that is going to distract people's attention from God because you can only look at one thing at a time. And so when we exalt something else in our lives, it ends up competing with God for worship. And that was what was happening in the church in first century Corinth. They had let other things in their lives be lifted up and begin to compete with God for their attention and their affections. So let's look at at what Paul says to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about worship. Let's start in verse 3. Let's look with me, chapter 11 starting in verse 3. Paul says, but I I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, well then let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman, she is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the sake of of woman, but woman for man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. So judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? 
But if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contingent, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Now, let me say right off the bat, this is an incredibly hard passage. It's one of the hardest in the entire New Testament. I actually flagged this passage in my notes all year long as we're going through 1 Corinthians because I knew this day was coming when I was going to have to talk to you about this really hard passage. I read four commentaries from four respected scholars on this passage and they gave me four different interpretations. It's a really hard passage. And, and there's still a couple verses here that I, I really don't know what's going on. Like that angel thing in verse 10, I don't have a clue. So you're going to have to go ask Paul. Don't ask me afterwards. I don't have any idea. But even though the details and even though a few of the verses are really mysterious and hard to wrap our minds around, the big idea, the basic principle in this passage is really clear. The big idea is clear. Paul is challenging both men and women in the first century Corinthian church to think hard about how they dressed when they came to worship. Because Paul wants them to understand, he wants both men and women to understand that how they dressed affected other people. And and they both, both men and women, had the ability to dress in a way that would distract other people from worshiping God. They could dress in a way that would draw the focus off of God and on to themselves. And so we're going to look at at both what Paul says to men and what he says to women. We're going to try to understand it in its ancient culture. And then we're going to try to think about how does that apply today? What does Paul want to teach us, men and women both, today? So let's start with the men. Men, we have the ability to take people's eyes off of the greatness of God when we exalt our status. When we lift up our greatness, our wealth, our standing, it can distract people's attention off of God and put it on us. Look with me again, starting in verse 3. Paul says, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. And man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Now, we'll come back and talk about verse 3 in much more detail in a little bit. For now, the key is to see, men, who is our head in verse 3? It's Jesus. And then verse 4, if a man came to church in first century Corinth with something on his head, a head covering, it brought shame or disgrace to his head, to Jesus. It shamed Christ. Now why? What's going on with hats in Corinth? Well, let me explain. Men, we we have a sense that sometimes it's okay to wear a hat. Sometimes it's good when you're working in the yard, when you're playing baseball. It's good to wear a cap, keep the sun off your eyes. We also know that, that there's sometimes in places when it's not okay to wear a hat, like when you walk into the MSC. Got to take the lid off. Why? Because if you wear a hat in the MSC, you are bringing shame or disgrace to the soldiers to whom that building was dedicated. Well, it's the same thing in first century Corinth. Men, when they went to worship idols, they would wrap their toga over their heads as a sign of piety or devotion to that idol. Only it, it really wasn't a sign of devotion because it wasn't all men who wrapped their nice toga over their heads. It was rich men. 
It was powerful men who took their nice toga and wrapped it over their heads in a religious service so that everyone would see how religious they were, how great they were. It was was very powerful men like the emperor himself. Here's a, a statue of Augustus, the emperor covering his head in worship so that we would all know what a great guy he is. What a righteous man he is. So in the ancient world, it wasn't all men wrapping their heads. It was wealthy men, powerful men. They were doing it not out of devotion, but out of show so that everyone would know how great they are. It's the same thing Jesus had in mind when he talked about the Pharisees in the book of Mark. Mark 12. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around and long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. Why were the scribes, why were the Pharisees wearing these long robes? Well, it wasn't out of devotion to God. It was out of show. They wanted us to know how religious they are. They wanted to sit in the best seats so everyone would look at them and think, what a great guy. And so what's going on in first century Corinth in the church is that rich, wealthy men are wearing a toga over their head so that everyone would know how great they are, so that everyone would look at them. It would be kind of like in our culture, a a judge wearing his robes in the church so that everyone knows he's a judge. Or a a football player wearing his jersey in the church so everybody knows what he does on Saturdays. Or or a wealthy man wearing a nice Armani suit and diamond cufflinks and a Rolex watch so that everybody knows how rich he is. That was what was going on in first century Corinth. And Paul wants men to understand that when we do that, when we exalt our status, when we lift ourselves up, the result is that it steals glory from God. That's Paul's point in verse 7. In the first half of verse 7, notice Paul says, For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God. What does it mean that we men are the glory of God? Well, Paul's taking us back to Genesis 2. He's reminding us that God made Adam out of dust in his image. And and God made Adam for a reason, for a purpose, to tend the garden, to keep and watch and protect the Garden of Eden. And when Adam fulfilled that task of tending the garden, all of the glory was supposed to go to God. God was supposed to be the one who was delighted in Adam's work. All the praise was to go to God. Men, that's why we're here on earth. God has given us stuff to do. He's given you a job. He's given you a school. He's given you a family to care for. He's given you things to do so that as you do them, you can do them in a way that brings glory, that brings delight to God. That's the idea. We do the work God has called us to do in a way that lifts up God and gives him glory. But when we instead do our work in a way that brings glory to us, that lifts us up, that exalts us, it makes us into thieves. We are stealing glory from God. We're stealing honor and devotion that are due to God and we're placing them on ourselves. And that was what was going on when men wore a toga over their head in church in first century Corinth. They were being thieves, stealing glory from God, putting it on themselves as they lifted up their greatness for everyone to see. Now men, how do we apply that today? If you wear a hat, it doesn't really say anything about your pride or your status So how do we apply that? Well, hats don't say anything about status today, but lots of other things do. How do we men show status, our standing, our wealth in this 
community? Well, lots of different ways. By, it's by what we wear, what we drive, where we live, where we eat, who we associate with, how we speak, how we act. There's lots of different things that we men do to show others how important we are. Now, guys, I'm not going to tell you what you should be wearing, what you should be driving, where you should be living. I'm not going to give you particulars. I'm going to give you principles. I'm going to give you things that you need to think about as you decide what to wear, what to drive, where to live, where to eat. I want to give you some some questions that you should be asking yourself on a regular basis. As you make these decisions as a man about what clothes to buy, what car to buy, what home to buy, where where to go eat, who to associate with, I want you to ask yourself, is my goal in life in making these decisions to lift up God as great or to lift up myself as great? What's my purpose behind this transaction, behind this conversation, behind this thing I'm about to do? Am I trying to make myself look good or am I trying to make God look good? So men, when people in the community, not here in the church, but out in the community, when somebody in the community gets to know you, are they impressed by you or are they impressed by your God? When men in the community get to know you, do, do they see a man who is caught up on himself, who is quick to, to exalt himself, who's quick to take credit for his accomplishments, who's showy, who likes to show off his wealth and success? Or do they see a man who makes much of God, who is quick to give away credit for his accomplishments to God and to other people, who, who lives in humility? Or, or men, when, when you come to church, what, what's your reason? For coming to church? Is it to be seen by the right people? Is it about showing off what a nice guy you are to other men or to other women? When you come to church, who do you talk to? Who do you spend your time with? Is it just with people who can advance your career or your social standing? Or are you spending time with anybody simply because God loves them? Men, let us be so incredibly careful. We do care about career, and we do care about our standing in the community, but let us never make selfish ambition or personal status something that competes with God for our loyalty. Let us never make our goodness, our greatness, our standing something that people focus their attention on. Let us instead do everything we can to lift up God. Let us live lives that when people in the community look at us, they think what an incredible God he serves, not what an incredibly great man he is. So that's a basic principle here. Guys, let's be careful about what we wear, what we buy, what we drive, where we go, who we associate with, that our goal is to make much of God and not much of us. Let's not be thieves who are stealing glory from God. Let's make sure that our lives are, are directing other people's attention at him so that when we come together for worship, people are looking at God and his greatness and not at us. That's Paul's instruction for men. He wants us to be careful, guys that we don't distract people by exalting our status, our wealth, our standing. Ladies, what does Paul have to say to you? He wants you to understand that you also have the ability to, to draw people's attention off of God by exalting your beauty. 
That's what's going on in this passage. Women were exalting their beauty. So you notice the contrast. Men were to come to worship and not wear a head covering. Women were to come to worship and cover their heads. Why? Why did a woman in a first century Greek or Roman church need to cover her head in worship? Well, a couple reasons. A couple reasons. First, when a woman came to church with her head uncovered, it brought shame to her husband. Brought shame to her husband in that culture. Look with me again at verse 3. Paul says, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Well, Paul begins his discussion of men and women by going deep theologically. He wants us to think about the nature of our God. Our God is a God who loves order. He loves structure. He loves it so much that not only did he design it into creation, but he designed it into himself, the Trinitarian nature of God. There is order in the Trinity itself. And so in eternity past, God the Son chose to submit himself to God the Father. And let's be really clear. It's not because God the Son is less a God than God the Father. No, they are both equally one God, equal in every way. That's a bedrock belief of Christianity. God the Father, God the Son, equally powerful, equally wise, equally perfect in every way. And so it's not out of inferiority or insecurity that the son submitted himself to the father. It's out of love. It's a free choice. Jesus so loves order that he chose in eternity past to submit himself to God the father. God the father leads. God the son submits by his free choice. You saw that really clearly when Jesus came to earth. When he showed up in the Gospels, he said things like this in in the book of John. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. God the Son allowed himself to be sent by God the Father, to do the will of God the Father. So God the Son freely chose to submit himself to the Father during his life on earth. But that continues today and, and will continue forever. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, later in this book, he says, when all things are subjected to him, that is Jesus, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. Jesus loves order so much that he's chosen to submit himself to the Father, not just now, but forever, for all eternity The son will set himself at the feet of the father because God loves order. It's part of the inherent nature of the Trinity, equal in every way. And yet the son chose to submit to the father. So because God so loves order in the Trinity, he designed it into creation as well. And and in particular, into the creation of marriage. And in verse three, it's really about marriage that we're reading, about a husband and a wife, not men and women in general. Paul wants us to understand, in marriage, the husband is called by God to be the head, to to lead, the wife is called to submit, but it's not because the wife is somehow less qualified than the husband. She's not less qualified as a leader, she's not less wise, she's not less powerful, she is equal to the husband in every way, and yet because God so loves order, she freely chooses to submit herself to her husband, just like Jesus submitted himself to the Father. 
And so in marriage, God has designed the husband to be the head, the wife to submit, not out of inferiority, but out of free choice. And in Paul's day, and in the culture of first century Corinth, the way that a wife showed her submission to her husband publicly was by wearing a shawl over her head. When she went out in public, she wore a, a covering over her head to show people that she respected her husband. So when a woman didn't wear a head covering in public, what did that mean? When she took it off the head covering in the worship service, what did that mean? Well, Paul tells us in verse 5. Verse 5, every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as a woman whose head is shaved. Disgraces her head. Who is her head? Her husband. When a, a wife in a, in a church service uncovered her head, it brought shame to her husband. But before we talk about that more, I want to pause for a moment and point out something really important to you. What are these Christian women doing when they take off their head covering and bring shame to their husband? They are praying and prophesying in the church service out loud fully participating in the service of the church. Now, prophecy, that's a hard one. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. For now, the key is to see that Paul and God want women to be fully involved in the life and the service of the church. God does want women to speak. In fact, there is only one thing that God, through Paul, forbids women to do in the church, and you'll find it in chapter 14. Turn to chapter 14 for a moment. Look towards the end, starting in verse 34. Paul wants women fully engaged in the life of the church. There is only one thing that he reserves for men. Look with me, starting in verse 34. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Now, some people use that as, as a blanket statement that means women should be absolutely silent. They use that to silence women in the church, but that is not what that can mean. Because chapter 11, Paul's assuming and wanting women to speak. You have to define this from context. It's a particular type of speech that Paul wants women to remain silent in. Paul defined it a few verses earlier. Look at verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. So one thing women were not to do was stand in judgment over the church. The role of governing the church, of declaring the, the mission and teaching of the church, Paul and God reserved that for men, but let's be clear, not men in general. That's not all of our jobs. It's a particular set of men called the elders. It is the elders, these male elders God appoints to lead the church. They alone are called to, to govern the church, to lead the teaching ministry of the church. Men and women both, we submit to them. So other than that, passing judgment, governing the church, everything else is open to women. So here at, at Grace Bible Church, women are invited and called to participate in every way in the life of the church with one exception. We reserve elders to be men. That's only for men. And, and the elders appoint men to do the preaching or teaching of the church in public. And that's it. That's the only thing reserved for men. Women are invited into everything else because Paul and God have an incredibly high view of you women. They see you as absolutely equal in every way to men. They want you to participate in the service and the life of the church because we have so much to learn from you. 
So women are in every way equal to men, but Paul wants married Christian women to understand in the first century, in the Greco-Roman world, a wife had the ability to either bring honor or shame to her husband by whether or not she would cover her head in church. You see, if a, if a Christian woman came to church and she took off the head covering, what that said to everyone else in the church was that she has no respect for her husband, that she really wishes he wasn't his husband or her husband. If she took that head covering off, what she's saying is, I really am not interested in submitting to this guy. He's just not worthy of it. In fact, in the ancient world, for a woman to take off her head covering in public, it was actually a little bit scandalous because it was a symbol of availability, A woman who was married took off her head covering to say to the world, I'm looking for an upgrade in the husband department. And that brought shame, disgrace to her husband. Okay, now how do we apply that today? If Julie wears a hat, if Julie doesn't wear a hat, it doesn't say anything to you about her respect for me. It has nothing to do with hats today, with head coverings today. So what does this look like today? Well, I think in today's world, in our society, how a wife shows respect for her husband is really a lot less to do with what she wears and much more to do with what she says. Women, your words have incredible power. Wives, you have the ability to lift up your husband with your words or to crush him like a bug. I'm going to let you in on a little secret about us married men. We are not nearly as confident as we let on. You see, when we were single, we thought we knew everything, but then we got married and you helped us understand we don't know Jack. We don't know anything about what we're doing. And yet the Bible's really clear. God told us that we have to lead our families and God said he's gonna hold us responsible for leading our families. And frankly, that terrifies us because we don't know what we're doing half the time. And, And it's hard enough to figure out what husband means, but then kids get added in and now we have to be fathers too. And we totally don't understand that one. And so we're just terrified all the time that we're gonna blow it. And in the midst of that struggle with insecurity and these roles that God has called us to live, the single most powerful form of feedback we get is your words. What you say either to us or to other people is the single most powerful thing in us fulfilling the roles God has called us to lead. You either lift us up, you either make us the husbands we were meant to be, or you crush us by what you say. And so a couple really practical things for you married women that I'd like to encourage you with. First, please speak encouragement to your husbands. When your husband does something well, tell him. When he does something good, tell him that he did something good. Don't assume that he knows we are not that smart. Your gender confuses us all the time. So please speak to us in simple language and tell us we did something good that you like. Encourage your husband to his face with your words. This is my first piece of advice. My second piece of advice, please never speak badly of your husband to other people. Now, I'm not talking about the wife who is talking to a counselor about a marriage problem. I'm not talking about the wife who is going to the police about abuse. You speak unfiltered truth there. I'm talking about when you gather with family or coworkers or friends and you talk about your husband. If your husband has done something that frustrates you, you're you're angry about it, please do not tell them about it. Please go to your husband. Tell him about what he's done. Please protect him when you are with your friends, even if he's not there. 
Speak only good things about your husband. If you complain about your husband behind his back to other people, I promise you it will get back to him. Eventually it will, and it'll crush him. It'll make it that much harder for him to become the man you want him to be. This is one of the things that I admire most about my wife, Julie. She's a vault. And so um, often I've hurt her. I've done something stupid or selfish right before she leaves the house because that's how it works in marriage. You do the dumbest thing right before you leave for the day. And so I do something really dumb. I hurt her feelings. She goes off to spend time with her family or her friends and they never know about it. They never find out. She'll come home and tell me what I did wrong. I need to know that. I need her to tell me, but she doesn't tell them. She protects me when she's with other people. I so incredibly appreciate that. That encourages me and lifts me up and makes me a better husband. So women, wives, please realize your words have incredible power, more power than you realize, either to encourage or crush your husband. So please use them wisely. Please respect and lift up and encourage your husband by what you say, whether he's there or not. So that's the first thing that Paul wants us to understand. Why was it a problem for women to take off their head coverings in worship in the first century Corinthian church? Because first of all, it it brought shame to their husbands. But there's a second reason why, why women shouldn't take off their head coverings in first century church. Second reason is because it created distraction for other people. Look with me again. Let's... Let's look again, starting in verse 7, back in chapter 11. Paul says in verse 7, For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he's the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Paul's taking us back to Genesis 2. Just as we said earlier, men were created, or Adam was created, to to be God's glory, God's delight. Adam was made out of the dust of the earth to tend the garden. When he did his, his task well, it brought delight to the eyes of God. But Eve, Eve was made for Adam. Eve was made to to fulfill a need that Adam had. Adam needed a companion desperately. Life was not good without a companion. And so God created Eve from Adam's side, from his rib, to fulfill that need in Adam's life, to be his companion. And when Eve fulfilled that task, it brought glory. It brought delight to Adam's eyes. She was glorious in his sight, quite literally, actually. Go to the end of Genesis 2, read it, and you'll see that when God brought Eve to Adam, for the first time naked and unashamed the dude burst out in song he was totally into it he was so excited he delighted to see his wife for the first time women what what paul's trying to get you to understand the way that god designed men and women men take great delight in the sight the physical beauty of a woman now in marriage that's a beautiful thing it's beautiful when a, when a husband sees his wife, he delights in the sight of her. Julie and I have been married for 11 years, and she is still surprised about how excited I get when I see her, and that's all I'm going to say about that before I embarrass myself. <laughs> it's enough to know, women, wives, your husband delights in the sight of you because that's how God made us to work. So in marriage, it's beautiful. But outside of marriage, it's not. When a man delights in the sight of a woman who is not his wife, then it becomes lust. It becomes ugly and it's destructive. Now, men, let's be really clear. That's our fault. 
Lust is never excusable. It doesn't matter what a woman wears. We are never permitted to lust after her. That is our problem, our fault. But women, please understand that in our battle with lust, you can either help us or hinder us by what you choose to wear. In Paul's day, in first century Roman culture, it was enough for a woman just to take the covering off her head. The standards of what women should wear varies from culture to culture, time to time. So in any given culture, whatever the standard is, if a woman goes beyond that standard, it invites guys to lust. So 200 years ago in our culture, it was enough for a woman to show off some ankle and guys were sweating. Today, it takes a lot more than that. In Paul's day, it was enough just for a woman to take off the, the covering over her hair. If she did that in public, guys began to look at her lustfully. And women knew that. They figured that out. And so women who wanted to draw the gaze of men began to flaunt social convention and take that covering off their head so men would look at them, so when men would lust after them. It's like actresses or starlets in our day posing publicly in bikinis or in photo shoots. That's because they know what that does to guys. They're trying to draw the attention of men onto them. That's exactly what Roman women were doing. We can actually see it in the coinage of their day. When they went to make coins, the Romans put on those coins things that they liked to look at. In their day, it was women without a covering on their head. Showing off their locks, that was enough. That was enough to incite lust in the heart of men. It wasn't just a problem in Corinth. It was a problem throughout all the churches of the Roman day. Paul says, 1 Timothy 2, 9, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. He knows that out in the world, women are using their beauty. They are uncovering their beauty to draw the lustful gaze of men. He doesn't want that to happen in the church. He wants women to to dress in a way that that helps men in their battle with lust, that helps men to keep the focus and the attention on the greatness of God. Now, women, how do you apply this today? Well, it's not about head coverings. Whether you wear a hat or not, that doesn't do anything to us. So uh, what is it in our culture? Well, today it's much more about cleavage and and short skirts and and midriffs, and I am not going to try to give you a dress code because I am not at all qualified to do that. Julie can testify to that fact. But I'm going to give you a couple principles to think about. Ladies, when, when you choose what to wear, I, I want you to, to think really clearly about that outfit you're about to wear. If you know that that outfit is going to trigger lust, just don't wear it. If you have an outfit in your closet that shows off just a little too much, you know it's a little scandalous, just don't wear that outfit, not ever. Unless you're married, you can wear it for your husband. He'll like it. But don't wear it outside of the house. Single women... Don't wear that outfit because you don't want to attract a man whose primary interest in you is sex. It's not going to work out well for you. Don't turn yourself into a piece of meat to be lusted after by undisciplined men. Okay, so if there's an outfit in your closet that you know will trigger guys to look at you lustfully, you know it draws the attention to men, don't ever wear it outside the house. You don't want that. That's not going to work out well. It's going to draw the attention off of God in your life and on to, to your sexuality. But what if it's an outfit and you don't know whether it's over the line or not? You don't know whether it it triggers lust. Well, we'll ask. Uh, If you're married, ask your husband. Julie and I do that from time to time. She will try on some outfits and she will come ask me about them. And I I can't give her fashion advice. I don't know if that's winter, fall, or spring. I don't know anything about that. (laughs) But I do know what that outfit says to men. I know how it makes us feel. 
And so she'll, she'll try on an outfit and sometimes I'll say, babe, that's great. Wear that to church, wear that anywhere you want. Other times she'll try on an outfit and I'll say, um, sweetie, I'm getting some feelings in here. And so we're gonna save that for, for the home. That's, that's only for me. That's not going out. Okay, so yeah, it's, that's a good outfit. <laughs> now I'm embarrassed. Okay. <laughs> so married women, use your husbands as a guide. If you're not married, talk to your friends. Go talk to someone who, who's a mature believer who's wanting to walk with the Lord and get their advice. Is this over the line or not? And if it's on the line or over the line, just don't wear it because you will be stealing glory from God and putting it on yourself in sinful ways that only bring pain to you and to the men in your life. Okay, so, so ladies, you, you have the ability to either glorify God or, or distract from God by what you wear. So the, the basic principle For men and women both, in this really confusing passage, it's really a very simple principle. Paul is challenging us to think hard about what we wear and what we do when we are in public. He wants us to be careful, not to distract people's attention off of the greatness of God, not to lift up our our status, our standing, our wealth, our beauty, our sexuality, where it draws people's attention and eyes off of the greatness of God. So we're not giving you particulars here. We're giving you principles as you choose what to wear, what to buy, where to go, who to associate with. Always be asking yourself in this choice that I'm making, am I lifting up myself? Am I exalting my standing? Am I exalting my beauty? Or am I exalting my God? Am I helping people to see how how great and how good my God is? So so let's end this morning by reminding ourselves how great and how good our God is. Because think about it. Why is it that we men are tempted to lift up, to exalt our, our standing and our wealth in the community? And ladies, why is it that you are tempted to, to lift up and exalt and show off your beauty for others to look at? Well, ultimately, men and women, we, we do that because we have lost sight of the greatness of our God. We've forgotten what a privilege it is to know the creator of heaven and earth, to be in relationship with the infinite God. We've lost sight of how satisfying God is, and so we are chasing satisfaction from status or beauty or any of the other countless idols this world chases after. And so let's spend some time remembering why is God great? Why is God worthy of our undistracted worship? Why is our God worthy of of men laying down your status, women covering up your beauty? Why is God worthy of that sacrifice? Well, well, first, God is worthy of, of all of our attention, of all of our devotion because our God is great in power. Remember that that God that you sang about this morning, he flung into existence countless billions of galaxies with just a word. He didn't have to do anything to create this universe. Just instantly it was there. He created life out of dust. He created man and woman and he placed them in a garden in a world free from sin and death. Our God is great in power. That's the first reason that he's worthy of our undistracted, undivided attention. But it's not just his power. Our God is also great in grace. 
Because our, our creator, he, he deserves everything from us. We owe him everything. We owe him our allegiance, our worship. We owe him our faith and our devotion. And yet that's not what we give him. Instead, we rebel. Instead, we serve ourselves. We, we glorify ourselves. We lift up ourselves. We hurt one another and we grieve the heart of God. And what we deserve from that infinitely powerful creator is destruction, is condemnation, and instead of giving us what we deserve, God gives us his son in grace. God gives us his, his most beloved possession, his own son, God the son, freely chose to come to earth and to live for us and then die for us as our sacrifice on the cross, taking all of our sins on himself, paying the penalty, the condemnation, suffering the wrath that we deserved, and then rising from the dead so that we could be forgiven and have life for free absolutely for free. You do not earn God's love. You do not work for God's love. It is an absolutely free gift because that is how gracious your God is. He is infinitely great in power and in grace. And so we do not want anything in our lives to distract people's attention from the greatness of God. That's what this morning's sermon is all about. Don't let anything in your life compete with God. Because there's nothing in your life that can hold a candle to the greatness and magnificence of God. He's infinitely greater than anything else we can bring to the table. And so men, we set down our status and we humble ourselves and we take a small position in the community because we wanna lift up the greatness of our God. We don't want our rank, we don't want our wealth, we don't want our success to compete with people's attention with God himself. And ladies, you cover over your beauty, not because you're not beautiful, but because you don't want your beauty to become a distraction to other people, to take their eyes off the beauty of their creator. We choose the path of humility, men and women alike, because we want to make sure that when we are in public and we are, when we are with one another, that it is only God who is lifted high that all eyes are on him, that none are drawn to us. That's what this is about. We choose humility because our God is worthy. Our God is worthy, men, of setting down our status. Ladies, God is worthy of you covering your beauty so that all praise, all love, all adoration would go to him. Heavenly Father, we confess you are worthy. You are absolutely worthy. You are the infinite creator You made this universe with just a word. By your power, it continues to exist. You are magnificent in every way. You see all things. You know all things. You are everywhere present. You are great and mighty. You are infinitely holy and just. And yet, even though we deserved condemnation from you, you freely chose to give us your son in grace and in love and in mercy. He died for us and rose for us so that we could spend forever with you. You are so greatly gracious. Heavenly Father, you are worthy of all of our worship. And so please forgive us for the times when we have exalted ourselves instead of you. For the times when we've lifted up our status, our success, our wealth, our accomplishments, our beauty, whatever it is, when we've lifted ourselves up and taken people's eyes off of you, forgive us for that. That's idolatry. That's theft. You deserve that worship. We do not. And so please, God, we pray, will you convict us? Will your spirit speak to each of us right now and help us to see where are those places in our lives? What are those things, whether they're things we wear or buy or do, where, where are those places in our lives 
when we're trying to draw attention to ourselves instead of putting it squarely on you. Please, God, help us not to compete with you. We pray that you would humble us. We pray that you would help us to do everything in this life, everything that we think and say and do and buy and wear. We pray that it would all be for your glory because you are worthy. We praise you and thank you for Jesus Christ. We pray that our lives would be for him, that we would lift him up as our savior and as our creator. We pray all this for the, for the glory and renown of Jesus Christ in his name, amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week as we continue to talk about worship.